Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Unfortunately, there's a lot of writing advice out there that doesn't help you write good. In fact, it helps you write pretty bad. And some of this advice is from professional published writers. Here to join us once again for another episode about bad writing advice is Matty Lewis. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be back. Uh, one of my one of my favorite topics to get all heated about is bad writing advice. It's incredible. I was I was real stoked, and you're like, "Hey, do you want to talk about some more bad writing advice?" I'm like, "Absolutely, let's go." There's so much. There's so 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 much. It's it's a little frustrating and and worrying just because you see so many fledgling writers going into like writing forums and writing communities and asking for advice and getting legitimately bad advice that makes their writing worse and it's like oh no i yeah. this is the one thing we didn't want to happen yeah and sometimes it's just like a case of the blind leading the blind where it's like someone who's written two short stories telling someone who's written no short stories how to write a story and sometimes it's a case of like you know, it's advice from a professional writer, and it worked for them in their particular, you know, their method, with their genre, with their aims, but that doesn't mean it's, like, a universal thing. Yeah. Or sometimes it's one amateur unpublished writer telling another amateur unpublished writer, here's the advice that I got from a book, like, how to write kick-ass stories that is written by someone who's only significant book is his book how to write kick-ass stories and not his supposedly kick-ass stories yeah that's a whenever anyone like talks about like what craft books do you reckon you do recommend i'm like what i recommend you do is look for craft books who are written by writers who you actually like and think are good yeah like you recognize their work you like it you think it's good that's yeah. a good craft book for you if you want to pick up a craft book. If it's by some nobody you don't recognize who you like, or, or like, heaven forbid, it's by a screenwriter writing general no. writing advice. Unless you're looking for screenwriting, do not take screenwriter advice. <laughs> yeah, don't listen to those people. They're fools. The book that I found the most helpful in terms of writing it's not written like an advice book it's more about analyzing it's a book by james wood he's a british literary critic and it's called how fiction works and it just lays out in immense depth and immense detail here's how fiction works here's how perspective works here's what the conventional wisdom is but here are a bunch of brilliant books that completely violate that conventional wisdom and you're like oh shit that's right okay like yeah. characters always have to be really multi-dimensional and multifaceted and deep and he's like well a lot of Charles Dickens characters are kind of one note and they're still pretty fucking cool so yeah and uh, I think that usually when someone says something positive about Dickens like the first thing they're going to say is like oh his characters are so fun or like they're so interesting right even though they're not the most nuanced or, or in-depth or, or three-dimensional they, they tend to do one thing really hard and it's fun to read. People yeah. like it. Yeah. 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 So why don't we dive in? Uh, first, we're going to start with a bit of a rather infamous bit of bad writing advice that ended up making the news indirectly, which is that writers don't need to read. And in fact, it's ableist to say 
that writers should read. Yeah, when I made this claim on Twitter, I think it's maybe the most shit that I've ever gotten. And I have definitely said th- some things on Twitter that are like objectively spicier and more inflammatory than, yeah, writers should read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's bizarre. It's really, really bizarre. And also, writers should read the classics, which, yeah, I think they should. I'm it doesn't. A lot of the times these things are classics because they're good. And I know that what goes into determining what's classic or not is very political and very biased, but I can't really think of works in the classics that don't have some kind of merit, even if they're books that I don't particularly enjoy myself. I can understand why, like, The Scarlet Letter is assigned to students because even though I it's not a book I particularly enjoyed I think it has it's one I of... love actually but <laughs> yeah. yeah it's one of my favorites but I, I still think it has a lot of merit and it's worth reading and you can get something out of it even if it's not like fun for you yeah, see this is me like with the great Gatsby which I think you do like I fucking love the great Gatsby I don't particularly like the great Gatsby but I'm like I I understand why we read this like I, I get I get it it's just not my bag. Yeah. I think maybe I'd like it better if I reread it like now than I did when I was, you know, a junior in high school or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but... it hits way better around age thirty. Yeah, so I'm pro- I'm about at the right age to reread it. I think. Yeah, you are at the perfect age. Like when I first read it in high school, I'm like, oh, whatever, and then I reread it around when I turned thirty, and I'm like, holy fucking shit. Oh my god, it hits so well at that age. Yeah, I think the the complaint that people make about, oh, well, like, you know, the classics is overwhelmingly, like, white, straight guys, and that's not untrue. Like, that is true, but they're the white, straight guys who wrote well. And most of them weren't straight. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of them weren't most straight. Most of these guys were at least bi. Yeah, at least, like, a little a little bit bi-curious, maybe. Like, Herman Melville really liked men. Yeah, he had a big old crush on Nathaniel Hawthorne, speaking of the Scarlet Letter. Like, that's, like, in his letters, and I'm like, yeah, I guess maybe you could argue that, you know, the time was different, people expressed their feelings about each other, and, like, different verbiage that we would today consider more romantic than it might have been back then, but, like, I read some of those letters, I'm like, I don't know, I think that may be stretching it a little bit. You know, I'm not gonna make, you know, a definitive statement on the, uh, the, the sexual orientation of, of a dead man who I have never spoken to and never will, but there's room for uh, there's room for some consideration, some thoughts, maybe. Oh, yeah. The letters he wrote, it wasn't just like, oh, I love you, I embrace you. It was like, I, I he compared the two of them to, like, man and wife or something yeah. like that. And it's like, it's, it's oh, wow, good. okay, yeah. And the, the fact that, like, Hawthorne started ghosting him after he received the letter is very strong indication (laughs) it's telling like he just went like oh shit oh no oh no i don't know how to respond to this i don't i don't know how to friend zone people because it's the 1800s and the friend zone hasn't been invented yet yeah i don't know how to do this oh shit shit Yeah, so I think that that whole argument is like, do you need to read all the classics? No. Do you need to read every classic? Not possible. No one's got the time. Yeah. Uh, do you need to like all of them? No, but it helps to read some now and again and kind of understand, if nothing else, understand like the influence that they've had, kind of the historical and cultural impact, because a lot of these books have had them. And like, yeah. 
it doesn't even have to be like a classic Harold Bloom Western canon classic and just be like, yeah, it's a classic of its genre or like, you know, it, it can be a classic of another region of the world. It can be, you know, a Chinese classic instead of an American yeah. or an English classic. But there's something to be learned from pretty much any book that we've kind of collectively decided, oh, like, we're going to still read this a century plus after it was written. Yeah. You could read The Pillow Book, which was written by a Japanese lady of, of the court, which apparently is just kind of like gossip a lot of it. It's just like a centuries old gossip and a woman being like really catty, which sounds pretty good. Yeah. It's like, just just open your mind and it will only hurt for a minute and you'll find something you like, I think, if you try. Um, yeah. There's something out there. There's something out there that the general like writers don't need to read just generally. That's the one that's like super galling because I'm like, yeah. I don't like that you don't need to read the classics argument, but like there's a little, I don't think the arguments for it are particularly good, but I do think there are arguments that can be made that it's not as important, but like you don't need to read in general, like, oh, um, yeah, the the argument that you don't the argument that you don't need to read is partly that there are other ways to absorb stories like films or TV shows or video game let's plays or summaries on Wikipedia which just horrifies me because okay, when you're reading it's not just to absorb the information that is the plot, it's about stuff like sentence craft it's how you tell the story and the types of stories and the way you tell them is different in like a short story or in a novel than it is in a movie or a video game you convey information differently you tell the story differently there's a different kind of story they tell like could if you if you read a novel structured like a video game it would be kind of a shitty novel there'd be massive sections where the hero kind of runs back and forth getting objects. Can, yeah, I was gonna say, can you imagine a fetch quest in a novel? Yeah, like imagine, I, I love the Zelda games, but a novel structured like a Zelda game would fucking suck shit. You'd have one guy alone, not interacting with characters except to occasionally yell, Hooah! Hey! And, and not only alone, like, it doesn't have any kind of, like, interior monologue, so it's not even like, like, you can write a story that's just one character by themselves, yeah. but, you know, since you are writing in, in prose with words, you can get into what they're thinking or feeling, what they, like, feeling either emotionally or physically, like, you can actually get into that and you, you can't, like, there's no model for how to do that if you're watching video game Let's Plays or TV shows. Yeah, it, it's just not. And also... You can kind of see what happens when people learn to write, quote unquote, without reading. And um, if, if you peruse a, a Reddit community called r slash writing, so many of the questions are questions that could easily be answered if you just read some more books. Like so many, so many writers going like, is it possible to have a book with like more than one viewpoint character? Like, no, the, the yes. hysterical thing is that is the, that is like the one that I see like repeated again and again and again. And it's usually fantasy writers. And I'm like, have, have you read a fantasy book that came out in the past like 20 years? Because like, I swear to God, a full third of them are multi POV because A Song of Ice and Fire was really popular. Yeah, it's shocking. So many epic fantasy stories are written in multiple points of view. Like it's it's almost like if you're looking for specifically epic fantasy. Yeah, if you're reading specifically epic fantasy, which is what half of these people say they want to write. Yeah. Like, 
so many of those books are written in like multiple view- viewpoints. Not even new ones either. If you want to, even if you like want to go to like Tolkien, like maybe it's not as in as deep of a POV as a, a contemporary book would be, but like he like follows different characters at different points in the story. Like sometimes you're with Frodo and Sam and sometimes you're with Aragorn and sometimes you're with different characters. So like that's been a thing and it's been a thing for a very long time. Yeah. You do not have to have read a lot to know that that like is within the realm of potential. And I'll note that this isn't just us like misconstruing someone asking how to do it well, which is a valid question. Yeah. Like that's a real question. That's it's a very good question. If it can be done, period. And, and to me, I, every time I see one of those, I want to be answered. It's like, no, but not like a general no. No, just for, for you specifically. <laughs> like other people, fine, but, but not you. If you had to ask this, you, you aren't, you're not there. You're, go and read a little bit. I do think some of the defensiveness about this is I think a lot of especially new writers seem to think that inspiration or like getting ideas is the thing that matters is when and when you say you have to read if you want to write they're like but I can get ideas from anything and that's true you can I've gotten ideas from occasionally from a movie or a game I don't tend to get many because I actually get most of my ideas from like real life like my own life or like history or science or something like that that's where I tend to get my ideas but like there's not really an invalid place to get an idea wherever you find the idea if you can work with it that's wonderful that's awesome but what media outside of the one you actually want to work in can't do is show you how to work in the media that you're wanting to do so if i want to write a story like i need to read stories if i want to write a screenplay i need to watch tv and movies and i need to actually probably read the screenplays of those things they just work with they have different strengths and different weaknesses and if you're not aware of what those things are you're not going to be able to take advantage of the form. It's not going to be as good as it could be. You're really, really handicapping yourself if you don't engage as a reader or a viewer in the form that you actually want to work in. Right. Right. So you need to read. You got to read. There's no way around it. And if you really, really freaking hate reading, but really love watching movies, maybe what you want to actually learn how to do is write for movies. Yeah. Or make movies. Like, Grab grab a cheap-ass camera. Do props, whatever. Yep. And I, I think, too, I, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of people who, like, really would maybe like to do a comic. That's, that's really what they want to do. Or they really want to make a show or a video game. But that seems like it has a higher bar to entry than just, you know, writing a story, which... I mean, most, most people... Anyone who has access to Reddit has access to a computer... So if you have access to a computer, you have access to a word processor. And even if you don't have access to a computer with a word processor all the time, like a notebook and some pencils is like five bucks at like the dollar store. Like it's very, very accessible. So I get that too. But like, yeah, you're just going to be someone who's like a frustrated, you know, frustrated trying to work in a medium you, you don't actually like very much. And you would probably actually do better doing like a kind of janky, like, you know, stick figure comic or uh, like shitty RPG maker video game. You'd probably actually get more out of that than you would, you know, trying to write a novel when you don't like reading novels. 
Yeah. It is obviously harder to make a movie or, or make a video game than it is to write a story, but the tools are a lot more accessible to an average person than they used to be. There are free tools that will allow you to make a video game or extremely very cheap tools that are that will allow you to make a little video game and there are communities of people who do this for hobbies who would love to help you out and there are some studios and and game developers who became professional after starting out doing that stuff i'm pretty sure the people who do wadget eye games started off doing like making these little point and click adventure games as a hobby on on some kind of internet forum or something and they just didn't the guys who made that that movie talk to me that just came out didn't they start out with like a youtube channel or something or something like that and there's like a lot of little amateur filmmaking youtube channels that have that have gotten really well like marble hornets that was a couple of kids with a cheap ass camera and like a really cheap mannequin in a really cheap suit that managed to make something of it and honestly even like even like if you have like an iPhone, like the camera on an iPhone is actually pretty darn good now. It's not going to be, you know, a professional like several thousand dollar studio camera, but like you can make something pretty decent if you if you, you know, if you put your mind to it and are like resourceful. There are there are options and they can be just like a stepping stone that you need to, to move on to bigger things. Yeah. But if you actually want to write and you think, yeah, like the the a, a short story or a novel or a series of novels like prose fiction, that's the way for me to tell my story. That's what I actually want to do. You've got to read. Mm-hmm. The other thing that just kind of bothers me, too, about this attitude is like, OK, if you're not going to give other writers the time of day, you're not going to read their work. You're not going to like you don't care about the media particularly. Why should anyone care what you have to write? Mm-hmm. Like, why should I, as someone who reads and someone who writes, why should I care about your writing if you wouldn't ever care about mine or any of my peers or any anyone who ever in the history of the world has written a book or a story? Yeah. Ugh. We could we could rail against this for hours, but if you're listening to this podcast, you already know. You, you need already to read know. And you need yeah. to write. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll note that I have never seen a writer who was successful by any metric of success, you know, financially, uh, critically, cult classic status. I have never seen a single writer be like, yeah, you don't need to read. Not once. Mm. But I've seen a lot of successful writers, like one of their top advice is almost always going to be, you need to read. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I do occasionally see people get like, kind of stupid in the other direction where there'll be like, oh, um, if you haven't read 500 books in your genre that were written in the past <laughs> 10 years, you don't even have any business starting to think about writing a book. And I was like, that's stupid, too. Like, you don't need to be, like, weirdly, like, quantitative about it. Like, have you read? Do you like to read? Do you generally understand how stories work because you've read? You're good. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think you need to be the type of person who's read, like, I read 100 books a year. Like, it's fine if you only read you know, a handful, but you, you got to read. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see, let's look at some other little, little bits of advice. Uh, here's something that someone suggested on blue sky that I, when I asked a question, what's the worst bit of writing advice you've ever gotten? Everything that happens in a story should be the direct result of the main character's actions. Yeah, that was that was mine that I got one time. Yes. Actually. Oh, that was you. God that damn. That was me. Yeah. Um, 
that's everything that happens in a story? Yes. Is your character a god? Is your character literally Yahweh? If it rains, is that your character's actions causing that? What? Yeah. We've established, I believe, in my other guest appearances that I'm like a horrible masochist and I really like to just like throw pearls before Reddit swine just every now and again for for funsies. Um, Partly because every now and again, you actually do get a poster who like knows what they're talking about. And every now and again, there's like, you know, a nugget of decent, you know, decent feedback in like a deluge of like stupid shit. (laughs) My short story, The Dark and Drowning Sea, which is very pointedly about how uh, sometimes really, really terrible things can happen. And it is like, it is not your fault. You could not have known. You could not have prevented it. That's very pointedly what it's about. And I had a guy be like, I don't like this story because like nothing that happened to the character was a direct result of what he did. I'm like, yeah, that's that's just life. And, and when I said I was like, yeah, that was on purpose. I got this very sneering like, oh, well, that sounds a bit literary for me response. And I'm like, oh, like, oh, first off, using literary is like a slur is like that already tells you what your mindset is. And it's yeah. not a good one. Again, that's one where it's like, I, I feel like you would know that this was not uh like a truism if you actually like read like regularly and didn't just play video games where yeah pretty much everything you do in a video game is because you 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 did it you made it happen yeah playing baba is you and going like this will teach me how to be a great author baba is me oh that was one of the most like what the fuck are you talking about jesse (laughs) uh bits of advice that I'd ever I'd ever received and I would have been like I'd been like I disagree but whatever if it had been framed as like personal preference you know I prefer when the character is more active or maybe if it's like this kind of story needs a more active hero or something like if you're doing adventure story you kind of need an active hero Yeah, Indiana Jones would not be super interesting if, you know, stuff just kind of happened around Indiana Jones. Like, he's kind of got... Well, actually, stuff does just kind of happen around Indiana Jones. So that was actually a bad example. But he's still doing things, too. He's still still taking some actions. And maybe uh, Lara Croft's Tomb Raider with with Angelina (laughs) Jolie is a better film example of, like, an action story where the the heroine makes stuff happen. Yeah. But, yeah, like, yes, for some stories, yeah, if I'm writing action-adventure, you probably don't want a reactive protagonist. Um, But, yeah, this was framed as, like, no, this is a truism about every single type of story, and if you're not doing it, it's wrong. Oh, that's super weird. Not to my subjective taste, I don't like it, which is fine, that's valid. You can you can like or not like what you please, but uh, framing it as like a universal was, it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But let's see, here's a quick one. You have to write in order or the end result won't be cohesive. That's what editing's for. Yeah, just no. You fix it in post sometimes. No. <laughs> I don't really have much of a rebuttal to that besides, no, you don't. I will say, personally, when I'm writing short fiction, I actually do prefer to write linearly. I start at point B, or Jesus, I start at point <laughs> A. Jeez, I'm, I'm contradicting myself here. You know, I start at the beginning and I just write till I get to the end. That's how I personally prefer to write for short fiction. I'm working on a novel right now. I write slow as hell. I know if I do that, I will never finish the damn thing. So I'm writing 
out of order because if if I got an iron hot, I'm striking it. I'm not going to wait until I get there because I don't want to sit there kind of like about something for like a million years. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, like if you actually believe you have to write an order, every single writer has to write an order to have a cohesive story. I feel like the only way you could believe this is if you just don't believe in editing or revising. It's super weird. That's a very weird one, but I have seen it. Yeah. And it's another one where I think it's like, that may be how some writers work, that if they write out of order, it's a mess and they hate it and it's just like not fun, doesn't work out as well as they'd like. That's probably true for some writers. I'm sure of it. Yeah. But I, no, it's not universal. Okay. That's not advice. So here's one again from Blue Sky. If you can't remember it without writing it down, then it probably isn't worth remembering anyway, which is like... Who on earth has that kind of flawless memory? Unless you've reached operating Thetan status. Like, you <laughs> are not going to have a perfect memory. And no, this is actually ableist. <laughs> this actually is ableist, that, too. Yeah, a little bit. Because some people actually do have, like, memory issues or brain fog, and they, they, they might actually have to write something down. But even, like, just people who don't have that kind of issue, like... Uh, as far as I know, I have no diagnosable memory problem, but I still got to write shit down sometimes. Yeah, and I think they're thinking in terms of ideas, too. Like, well, if you have a good idea, you don't need to write it down. Well, it's not always good ideas, either. Sometimes the things we think of aren't the big idea, but, like, a little observation or a cool little turn of phrase or some kind of interesting little detail that you'd like to use in a character or use in a description. And that's really hard to hang on to. That's super hard to remember. Yeah, I definitely, I would say, like, if I have, like, an idea, idea, like, big picture premise that is any good, I'm probably going to remember it. But, you know, just like a little phrase or, or uh, a sentence even or a title, something like that very well could slip my mind if I if I don't write it down. Or it could be something that I, I forget and then remember again, like, four years later when I've already published the story that it was for. Oh, no. <laughs> that is a very weird and bad writing advice. Such a bizarre bit of advice. It makes zero sense. Legitimately ableist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is legitimately ableist. The next thing we're going to bring up, I guess, more discourse is more questionable about ableism, and that is the debate over you need to write every day versus it is ableist to tell me to write every day. Like, I, th I think when people say you need to write every day, I don't think they're generally being literal. Like, oh, if you're in a coma and you're not writing, you're right. not a real writer. It's like, oh, you had, like, you know, massive food poisoning coming out both ends, but you didn't get your sentences down today. Like, damn, you're not a real writer. Now, everyone has days where it's just not going to happen for one reason or another. You're not feeling well. Uh, you know, it's, it's your spouse's birthday. Uh, you're on vacation. Work's been hell. Whatever. Everyone has things like that. I think what they do mean or or what they should say is you need to write regularly then that can look different for everybody that can look different for people at different you know phases of their life there are times where you know writing regularly for me is yeah i write like 5 out of 7 days a week for a little bit and sometimes writing regularly for me is i only write one or two days a week but you do have to make a habit of it yeah and that's really it you just have to do it consistently and 
that that's all there is to it. <laughs> you just gotta fucking do it. Yeah, and at, at a certain point, like like I know I am. I don't have like the most writing stamina. I will say I know that about myself. So I adjust my expectations of what I'm going to do accordingly. I don't expect to churn out a 500-page novel in a year. That is not a realistic expectation for me and how I write and the amount of time that I can or want to dedicate to it. I'd like to write a short story in three months. I can do that. That's reasonable for me. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about head hopping, and I'm actually going to give us the case for head hopping. A lot of kind of beginner writing forums and beginner writing guides tell you not to do what they call head hopping, and that's where you're hopping from one character's head to the next. You're shifting perspective from one character's internal thoughts to another character's without a break in the novel. So if you've been going for a close third-person limited point of view thus far, and then you switch halfway through and then you don't do it again, it can be a little sloppy or jarring. But if you head hop throughout the book, then I think you're being consistent and it's fine. And I don't know if it counts in a third person omniscient book, but third person omniscient books tend to head hop all the time. They go from one character to the next. I don't know if it counts because that's just, that's just, that's just kind of this, that's just the format basically. Like that's like the point of third person omniscient. Yeah. It's something that occurred to me when I was reading Clive Barker's The Hellhound or The Hellbound Heart. It hops between the characters' perspectives within the same page, same section, same scene, same paragraph sometimes without a break. And it works. It seems to sort of hop from one character to the next to another during an interaction and then it stays with the other character. It's almost like the camera's following one character and then it goes and follows the other yeah, character. Yeah, and like, I, I actually recently read The Hellbound Heart for the first time. It's not confusing. Like, it's, it's easy to follow. Yeah. Clive Barker knows what he's doing. So many, especially beginner writers, get like that, that you know, head hopping thing becomes like such a bugbear for them is because they're they're used to really only reading third person limited pov or first person pov um they're not used to reading omniscient Mm. because it's not that common anymore so especially so if you're like 17 on reddit there is a good chance you've never act especially if you didn't do your high school assigned reading either there's a very good chance you've like never actually read a third person omniscient book so you actually don't know how it works but so I understand why, like, especially younger beginner writers are like so like thrown off by it because it's it's not a common thing anymore, but it can work. Uh, it can work great. Yeah, I, I think it's it another takes a deft hand. Like, I will say, like, it's yeah. not something I would probably personally try. I don't think I have quite the I'm not going to say like I'm not a good enough writer to do it because I, I am at the point where I'm like, I'm not going to be that humble. But it's not a skill that I have worked to develop to a point where I would feel comfortable just like doing it without a lot of practice first. Mm. But you can absolutely do it. Yeah, I think it's one of those pieces of advice we give to beginner writers where we're leading them wrong, where we tell them just in across the board, don't do this rather than. This is possible, but it it's a little tough. Or it will, it'll be framed like, never do this, instead of like, hey, I noticed you're going for a third person limited, or hey, I noticed you're writing in first person. When you're doing that, you don't want to do this because it breaks the POV. That's valid. You know, if someone's given you a short story and the entire thing has been in third person limited or first person, but there's two lines that are like obviously from the POV of a different character, that's a mistake. 
if it's mm. consistent and it makes sense, that's not a mistake. That's an artistic choice. And it's a, you know, it's got a place. It's got a purpose. Sometimes you may not like it, but like sometimes it really slaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, here's a bit of writing advice, and we're not going to say exactly who it came from, but the most... I think I've seen more than one person say this, so... Yeah. The most important part of every paragraph should be moved to the end, which is bizarre. No, no, no. Wouldn't that make your paragraph structure really repetitive? I'm just wondering, so... I can see in a nonfiction how probably a nonfiction or like something more journalistic, there might be an actual identifiable, like this is the most important part of the paragraph. But if I'm writing a story, like how do I tell like what the single most important line and which is the most important sentence in my paragraph? You know, this is actually like a really funny one because I remember when I was in an undergrad, I had a, a short story I'd written for like an independent study with with one of my professors. And his comment on it was that I wrote it like I structured it like an essay because I'd been so used to writing essays where like I was leading with something that was like obviously like the, the most important and then everything else was like following. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you need to not do that. <laughs> And I, you know, kind of restructured my paragraphs so I wasn't doing that, and it was a much better story that way. <laughs> yeah. It's such a strange bit of advice that doesn't really make any sense to me. Move the most important part of every paragraph to the end. It, I kind of think that if you're looking at one sentence of the paragraph and saying, this is the important sentence, the other sentences aren't important, do the other sentences really need to be there? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of when, you know how when you're learning to write like an essay, like a, a persuasive essay or an informative essay in like middle school and high school, they tell you to have your topic sentence for each paragraph. Yeah. And then, you know, after that sentence, you elaborate on it. It seems like almost the reverse of that. And it, it I don't know. I don't I don't know where this would come from, but I, I've seen it more than once. I don't get it. It is very strange. We're, we're going to tell you, don't do this. Don't, don't fucking do this. All right. <laughs> In fact, I, I might even go so far as to suggest you don't even think about what the most Im important sentence in a paragraph of prose fiction is. You, you do need to think about like where it makes sense to have paragraph breaks. Yeah. Or if you're trying to have a, like a twist or a shock or something, you, you probably want to put that at the beginning or the end, but I don't think this works. I don't like this at all. No, maybe maybe for nonfiction, strange. maybe for something journalistic, not for fiction. Yeah. All right. So this was a bit of advice that went semi-viral on Twitter, apparently, from someone named uh, Alyssa Matizic. I'm probably mispronouncing that. A book editor. And she was saying this about writing in close third-person point of view. Writing internal thoughts in third person. While most of the manuscript will be written in third person... The POV character's inner dialogue should be in italics and written in first person. That's how they would realistically speak to themselves in their head. No. No, Alyssa. This no. is like such a weird one to me because I'm like, okay, that's one way you can do it. I've seen it done that way. I've yeah, but to say this is the only way to do it is bizarre. There are so many other ways. Yeah, uh, you can summarize what they're saying without what they're thinking about. 
you can just write it not even in italics and, and it'll be like, you know, if you have a sentence and you're like, did I leave the door open? Like you can italicize that and then we'll know that they're thinking, but I don't know. It's weird to make that like, this is the only way to do it. And I think framing it as like a realism thing is like, I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking, I'm not thinking in italics. Yeah. I'm not thinking in complete sentences talking to myself all the time either. No. When I'm worried that I left the door unlocked, I don't think, did I leave the door unlocked in my head in a complete sentence? It's more like, oh, fuck, door. Door? Door. You know? Yeah, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. I sometimes think to myself if I'm thinking in, like, complete sentences at all. I sometimes think to myself in second person. <laughs> <laughs> Did you leave the door unlocked? I literally or, do. I'm not kidding. Not all the time, but, like... Or what if I want to be fancy and I'm thinking in the royal we? Did we leave the door unlocked? <laughs> Yeah, I, I know we're getting a little silly and, and like in the weeds with this, but it really is like a bizarre thing to make so prescriptive. It's it's odd. It's very odd to say this is the only way you can write like, I've seen it done multiple monologue. times and I don't think I've ever had, I don't think I've ever been like, damn, what was this dummy thinking? Not writing this thought in first person and italicized. This yeah. asshole really wrote... Bill wondered where his wife was when he got home and her car wasn't there. Mm. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another one that we can talk about very briefly and just quickly dismiss. Avoid using the word said in dialogue tags because it's boring. Use a spicier word. No. Fuck you. This ends up sounding really goofy. We all remember the bit from I'm sorry, but Harry Potter where somebody highlighted the phrase Ron ejaculated loudly. That's what happens when you don't use said. You ejaculate loudly when you're not supposed to. Yeah, this is one of those things where I like, I see people who are just like so hard line on either way. And I'm just like, damn, like if you're having to think this much about what dialogue tagging you're doing so you don't get repetitive, you're probably tagging more than you need to. I'm also going to point out, if the dialogue tags are spicier than the dialogue that they're tagging, then you fucked up. Yeah, I will say, for me personally, I usually stick to said or asked, unless it's a case where the character, like, the volume of their voice has suddenly changed, and, like, I want to indicate that, and I might, you know, they might shout or whisper, I'm writing a romance, but I fucking refuse to have my hero growl. That's goofy. I hate, I hate when people growl in books. I hate growling. No, you didn't. You didn't growl. Unless you're a werewolf. You didn't growl. If you're a werewolf, you can growl. You can have a growl as a treat if you're a werewolf. Yeah, you can do it if you're a growl. If, if, you're, if you're a werewolf, you can growl. That's it. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that when people say said and asked are invisible, they really kind of are. I, I don't know why that is. I, I guess it's just become such a convention that it's there so we know who is saying the thing, but how they say it doesn't always matter as much. But I also, I, I'm also not going to be a hardliner, like total hard ass and be like, if you ever use a word other than said, you're dead to me. Yeah. But a lot of the people who are like, no, you've got to use different words. You can't just keep doing said. Um, are, are people who are tagging every single utterance, even when it's like 
the context are surrounding that utterance makes it perfectly clear what character who is talking. Like, you mm. don't need a tag at all. I think a lot of it, too, is trying to zhuzh up some really kind of dull dialogue. Yeah. Trying to make it clear that, ah, this is an argument, or this is of this, this is of that. No. If it's not self-evident in the dialogue what it's doing, or that it's something that we should be interested in, then trying to band-aid on an exciting dialogue tag is not going to work real well. What's in the parenthesis is what's important. What's outside of the parenthesis is mostly functional. Yeah, I, I think my thing that I see with taggings a lot really is just people who are like doing it way, way, way too much. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, that actually does become like it's invisible if you use it sparingly, but it does become repetitive and annoying if every time a character says something, you tag it with they said. Mm hmm. Yeah. I, I've seen this even with when it's like a conversation with two characters and it is at no point unclear which character is speaking, but every single utterance is tagged. And I'm like, why are you doing this? That and ideally you want your different characters to have different voices that come across. So if you're writing really carefully, and admittedly I'm guilty of this and I have trouble with doing this, if I pluck out a line of dialogue, if you've really made these vivid, unique characters, it should be, the reader should be able to say, oh, that that's so-and-so said that, didn't he? It's that guy. Because that's how he talks. That's, that's such a so-and-so line. Like, okay. Like, a Homer line would be different from a Marge line. Yeah, and I get it that, like, <laughs> man, dialogue is hard as hell. It's like, oh, yeah. Some people have just, like, this natural ear for it, and, like, their dialogue just sounds great. And maybe maybe that's just my perception, because I never saw their shitty dialogue that they wrote five years ago. Um <laughs> Which I think is probably more often the case than someone just like, you know, decides I'm going to start writing and their dialogue is just automatically pretty good. Yeah. But yeah. it's tricky. I know a lot of writers who struggle with dialogue. Uh, I would say up until maybe like last year, I wouldn't have said I was very good with dialogue. I still don't think I'm great. If you asked me to rank my self-perception of what I'm best at in writing, dialogue's not in the top three, probably not in the top five. Mm. But... It just takes work. You gotta yeah. work at it. So the idea that protagonists have to be likable or relatable or moral or logical, I, I see a lot more. I see a lot of people getting angry that this character acted in a way that was irrational. They, they sort of want more competence porn because that is the modern equivalent of being a good virtuous Christian, I think, is being a rational, self-interested actor. I don't care as long as they're interesting. I don't care as long as they're interesting. Likable often means bland. Relatable often means exactly like me, the very boring reader. I don't... Yeah. I, I love horrible little guys. Yeah. Horrible, gross little guys. So much of the joy of reading H.P. Lovecraft is that you were reading from the perspective of just a horrible little man. Just a weird little freak man who's terrible and it fucking slaps. Yeah. The problems I have with likable is you constrain yourself to, like, a much more limited type of character. Who's likable, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm likable to some people, but there's definitely some people out there are like, man, this bitch fucking sucks. I can't stand her at all. Mm -hmm. 
So you can't you can't really make a universally likable character. So it's like a fool's errand to try because everyone has different things that they like. Ditto relatable. You can't make a universally relatable character because everyone relates to different things and different yeah. experiences. Yeah. Um, logical and moral. I don't know. Well, one. This is like a realism thing. People don't always act morally or logically, especially logically. Oof. The advice that I would personally give for characters is that the character should be interesting. And I don't care if that's super well-rounded, multifaceted interesting, or they do one thing really, really hard interesting. There's a, you know lots of ways to be interesting. And that the character is believable within the framework you've set up of the story. If I'm reading, like, a high fantasy story, a character that's believable in that story is very different than if I'm reading a contemporary literary fiction story. Mm. I buy Conan in in Conan. Uh, <laughs> a relatable character for any of us. I'm very... I relate very strongly to Conan the Barbarian. I don't <laughs> know what you're talking about. We have so much in common. We love... To hear the lamentations of our enemies' women. I bet, you know what? You like lifting. I bet Conan likes lifting. <laughs> I bet he lifts really good. I bet he lifts so hard. He lifts way harder than me, though, I bet. He's got much better form. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Conan never skips leg day. Never. I think trying too hard to make it likable and relatable, particularly like these things. It's like if you try to make a character too much like this, it's like, you know, the saying where like if you try to please everybody, you won't really please anybody. Yeah. I hate fully virtuous characters, to be honest. I fucking hate them. I'm like, who's this little goody two shoes? Do you think you're better than me? You're not. Fuck you. I don't like them. It doesn't even necessarily have to be like a like, oh, here's a thing you do that's like actively and hostile and shitty but even like a character who's has flaws that like i don't know they're not really harmful but like they're definitely not great even something like that like a character who's like a little too passive or a little too self-effacing can be like sometimes that can be interesting too but if you give me someone who's always right always nice always makes the right call I don't care. I don't know her. Fuck that bitch. I hate that bitch. She thinks she's better than me? Fuck you. <laughs> I don't like her. And I will note that the likability and relatability, that hammer seems to get swung harder at female characters. Oh, yeah. I've noted. Like, we can we can accept a male character who's just like a loathsome little worm a lot easier than a female character. And personally, I support fictional women's rights and wrongs. Yeah, or just a total weirdo. I, again, convenience store woman. I hope that very few of you relate to her that much, but God, what a character. Incredible character. The fact that she's... The bit where her sister is over and they're talking and her sister just asks basically, why can't you just be normal and starts crying? And Keiko just quietly eats the dented pudding cup that she got from the convenience store where she works. Just eating a dented pudding cup because she didn't want to eat one of the good pudding cups because she loves the store too much. And the store needs the good pudding cups to sell. Oh my god. Incredible moment. That's like a perfect example of what I'm talking about where like I want a character that's interesting and a character that's believable in the setting. She's so fucking weird. She she's rocks. weird, but she's not weird in a way that clashes with 
the setting or the story. I believe that someone like Keiko exists. Absolutely. Keiko rocks as a character. She's terrifying as a person. I do not think I would want to be friends with Keiko. You couldn't be. You're not a convenience store. I'm not a convenient. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Only if you're a slurpy machine can you really be friends with Keiko. That, that is the thing. I don't get the people evaluating fictional characters like they would evaluate people they want to be friends with. Yeah. Keiko cannot have human friends. She can't. She's literally not capable of it. No. Which is what rules about her. She's terrible. It's TLDR, so cool. TLDR read convenience store woman. It's so cool. Best book. It is so good. It's so good. I fucking love that book. Okay. So we did a whole episode on this one, so we're not going to spend time on it. But readers slash characters deserve a happy ending and you need to make people feel good. No, suck a dick. That's my answer. Yeah. And it, it, for the other answer, read uh, uh, listen to one of our old episodes called The Bitter Medicine of Unhappy Endings. Cause, no. No, you don't. You don't. You don't gotta. You don't gotta. You. If you want to, that's cool. Yeah. You know, if you feel like I've got to, I want to tell a story that ends happily. Go for it. Go with God. Uh, there's no reason you have to. I'm like Nine Inch Nails. We're here to have a bad time. Yeah. Synthesizer. Okay. So moving on. Something that a lot of fantasy writers, aspiring fantasy writers, believe is that you need a magic system if you have magic in your books. And no. No, this is Brandon Sanderson's fault. Uh, he's he's. Oh yeah, it's it's a hundred percent his fucking his fault. fault. He teaches people that they need it, and you really don't. Magic systems came about because of role playing games, because you need a way to calculate up the damage that happens when you fire magic missile at an orc or something. Yeah, and when you're playing a game, like you want to have a system so it's fair. Yeah. And someone can't just be like, I slam my palm into the ground and columns of fire come up and everyone dies. Yeah. But magic and folklore doesn't really work that way. It works in a way that's a lot more symbolic and emotional and it doesn't work so much in a magic system. Magic system is kind of making computer programming yeah. out of magic and you're doing it's not science. It's magic, fucker. Yeah, I refer to it as, as engineer logic, but I think that's really selling engineers short. It's really more like IT guy logic. Yeah. So, so Maddie, you have a story in which you witnessed r slash writing. A... It was r slash fantasy writers. r slash fantasy which writers. Which is not a place of honor. Actually talk an aspiring writer out of a good idea. So tell us about that. I will never forget this. Like, like I will go to my deathbed thinking about this poor writer who got like totally shit on by r slash fantasy writers. So it was this writer who was asking for feedback on this idea for a magic, not system, but magic in their story. And it was a, a necromancy type magic and the ritual involved um, taking a corpse and anointing the body in wolf's blood and the eyes in raven's blood. Hell yeah. I was like, and I was like, this is so cool. It makes, like, does it make sense on a scientific level? Not at fucking all. Does it make sense on a symbolic level? Yeah. Like, a wolf, like, that's a strong and vital animal. So you, you put that on the body and, like, kind of imbue it with that energy. And a raven, like, that's a smart animal. That's an animal that's far sighted. You put it on the eyes. Okay, that totally makes sense. 
not in like a fucking dork computer toucher way, but in like a, I am like a Viking berserker and this is what I'm doing to raise my fallen comrades sort of way, which like, that was so cool. And all of these fucking nerds on Reddit are just like, "Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Why would it do that? You need a system. You need to explain it better. I think I was the only person who posted in a comment being like, no, this actually fucking slaps. All of these people are wrong. They're Philistines. Don't listen to them. You do your fucking like black metal ritual, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was just, uh, literally uh, the only good idea for a portrayal of magic I have ever seen come off of our slash fantasy writers. And these dorks all shut it down. And this is why my firm belief is that goths need to write fantasy and nerds need to not. Yeah, definitely. All right. So moving on, uh, here's another very bad idea, which is to let a robot determine your vividness score of your manuscript. Oh, this one's a recent one, and it got a little discoursey. A little bit of backstory here. Recently, uh, some tech dorks created a product called ProseCraft, which is supposedly to help authors by analyzing the quality of their work. But a ton of writers got really fucking mad because they found out their books were used to train this AI tool and put into a database without their permission. Mission. It was they considered it copyright infringement, and most writers really don't want AI writing tools to exist. So it's like, hey, you're taking our work without our permission and using it to train this like scab bot thing. And aside from that, aside from the moral and ethical and copyright issues, the product created these weird janky results. Like this book is 96% vivid. Like, the fuck does that mean? How do you quantify vivid percentageness? How is that helpful? I guess the eventual goal was to let writers stick their own books in there to analyze the vividness percentage. But the way it determined vividness was so arbitrary and weird. And it came down to a word list that assigned vividness scores to individual words. And one of the developers actually posted a selection of this list of selection of the vividness lexicon on his blog on a Medium post. It said, Benji Smith, and I'm looking at it, and it's really, there's some very strange choices, like forest, the word forest gets a 1.8 vividness score, but the word wintry gets a 9.9. I'm looking at this, and there's almost, like, no rhyme or reason, it seems almost completely arbitrary. Mustard gets 6.9, but... Vanilla gets 7.3. Underpants gets 7.3, but Petticoats gets 8.1. I don't I don't understand. This. Yeah, Nipples gets 5.5, but Belly Button gets 9.4, so maybe we just know where this guy's fetish yeah. is. But Charcoal gets 6.0, but Cyan gets 9.5. And Azure gets 7.4. I don't don't get it. Like, I don't understand how you quantify the vividness of an individual word because dependent on the context you're using the word in, it can change like a lot. Yeah. And on top of the stem brain worms, I feel like this would also push you to make your writing too wordy, too verbose. I got to pick a more vivid word. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not the word you need. The only thing that's sort of consistent is like, Simple colors like red is a 2.3, blue is a 2.7. I don't know how you decide objectively that red and like red is less vivid than blue. <laughs> Brown is even more vivid at 3.0. I don't, okay. Yeah, I could see it if it was like the most basic, like, okay, like, yeah, like 
Scarlet is probably more vivid than red in most contexts, Mm -hmm. but it's not always the most accurate. And then when you get like out further, it's like, okay, so Scarlet, we can probably agree is more vivid than red most of the time, but is it more or less vivid than crimson? What about vermilion? Yeah, those aren't interchangeable. But those are are also different colors. Yeah, those don't describe the exact same shade of red either. So you can't just pick the most vivid one. Yeah, I would not call something vermilion that's crimson. They're not the same. Yeah. This strikes me as like someone who doesn't actually know how a thesaurus works. Yeah. Like regurgitated is 9.2. Well, why is regurgitated that high? Because it's it's sort of a almost a scientific or medical word. In in the right context, maybe puked or upchucked might work better, depending on how the tone you're going. If you're going for a humorous tone, upchuck might work a lot better than regurgitated. Regurgitated might be a little too formal or stodgy. Yeah, and again, I think the context really matters too, because there's some contexts where if you're describing this like really intense like action scene or something and someone gets cut and you just say that the blood is very red, the understatement almost makes it more vivid. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's like such a worthless <laughs> tool the other thing in fact it's like almost the opposite of a tool because i think it'll make you work yeah it'll make you really i think it would make your prose a lot more purple yeah and i think the other thing about this 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 particular tool one of the other things it seemed really fixated on adverbs Mm. like what percentage of your book was adverbs in general which of those was at like ly adverbs and which were like non-ly adverbs and i'm like why do you give this much of a shit about adverbs? I guess because adverbs are bad. <laughs> adverbs are bad, as, and that's it. And it also had a percentage for the passive voice, which passive voice is also it bad. It didn't actually know what passive voice oh, was. Because it was reading anything that used was as passive voice. And that's not always <sighs> the case. Anyways. Like, Bob was tired is not a passive voice sentence. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's just bizarre and, and bad and unethical and all around, and I believe they took it down because enough writers got mad at him. Yeah, and rightly so. Honestly, like, even, and maybe this is just me being, like, bitchy or catty, uh, even if I didn't have issues with AI and data scraping and copyright and the, like, dubious ethics of it, people are trying to argue that it's fair use, and I don't understand that really honestly well enough to make a call there. But even if all of that was not an issue, the product created was so janky, I would be offended just by that. Yeah, it's bad. So so don't let a robot decide if your book's good. It No, no. It can't. It's not can't. a real reader. It's not a person. Yeah. It can't really meaningfully analyze. A robot can't do art. Yeah. So moving on to another robotic thing, let's talk about the mice quotient. A good number of professional sci-fi fantasy published writers, including Brandon Sanderson. published writers too, not just like some randoms you've never heard of. Mary Robinette Kowal and a couple of Hugo nominees or winners believe in something called the mice quotient. So the mice quotient supposedly helps you determine how many words long a story is supposed to be. Mice is an acronym. Stories have four elements, milieu, which is setting, idea, character, and event. So that's M-I-C-E. Now to determine what a story's length should be, they give you an actual equation. L equals, in parenthesis, C plus S, times 750, times M, and all that over 
divided by 1.5. So that means the length of your story should equal the number of characters plus the number of stages or scenic locations. And you add up the number of characters and the number of stages or scenic locations, multiply it by 750, multiply that by the number of mice threads or story threads, sort of, and divide all of that by 1.5, and that's the number of words your story should be. Now, I gotta be honest, like, when I looked at that equation, Fortunate Son started playing <laughs> in my head. I didn't become a writer because I'm good at math. If I was good at math, I would be making, like, shitloads of money right and now. And while I was watching the video, the presentation in which she demonstrates this, she's using the cadence of, like, a youth pastor. I just kept thinking of Kelvin Gemstone trying to explain smut busters to a bunch of unsuspecting children while Keith moons for him over in a corner. It just, it was very upsetting to me to watch this video, and I, I apologize if I'm leaving out some of the nuances because I couldn't get through all of it because I felt like I was having a stroke. I get that it's important to get a story to be the right length. I see a lot of inexperienced writers trying to cover too much in a story that's a little too short for it. Yeah, I think that's the one I see most yeah. commonly for really yeah. new writers is they'll be like, here's my first chapter and it's like a ton of shit happening, but it's like maybe a thousand words yeah, long. Yeah, it's just too dense or something or the story's too big. Nothing's explained or nothing's detailed yeah. enough. And I get that. So I, I get the idea of trying to get a, a ballpark figure, but I, I think it's better to play by ear than to have this equation, because I'm thinking of some stories that absolutely bang and then violate this. Shirley Jackson's The Lottery has a shitload of characters. And it's not that long a story. It is a short-ass story. I guess they'd say, oh, well, well, the number of locations is real small. Fuck you. Um, and it's got a lot of ideas. I don't know how many ideas you'd have for my yeah, story. I don't know really necessarily how you would know. even quantify that in some stories, yeah. how many ideas uh, it I have has. another idea. Let me add an additional 750 words. I don't know. Mrs. Dalloway, I think, would violate this in, in the other direction. I mean, what are the events? Not many. Mrs. Dalloway bought some fucking flowers by herself. So Mrs. Dalloway should only be approximately 750 words long. Oh, Se Septimus <laughs> jumps out a window, so you get another 750 words. Yeah. Oh, boy. But, I mean, that that novel's incredible. It's one of the greatest novels of the century. The Screwfly Solution, on the other hand, has a really, really short number of words by this equation. It tells the entire story of the apocalypse, and there's a shitload of characters, and a bunch of things happen, and, and a bunch of stuff goes on, but it sketches it so deftly and it's so tight that it tells the story of a gender apocalypse with a bunch of different characters going on over a good period of time in short story form and it's incredible how effective it is how tight it is and it just throws in at the very end oh yeah some fucking aliens show up and you get like two sentences on that it does not give 750 words to the aliens it's just like bam right at the end here's some goddamn aliens yeah. and you're like what the fuck and it rocks. You know, I, if I was the type of person who, like, you know, could actually stomach doing complex math for more than, you know, like, two seconds, I would love to take, like, a whole bunch of really, really, like, noted banger stories and see how many of them violate this whole quotient. Because I am willing to bet more of them do than don't. Yeah. 
when we were we were talking about that in the Discord, someone someone said, and I thought this was a much better alternative. I prefer my homegrown cunt quotient, character, unsavoriness, naughtiness, terror. <laughs> Those are the fundamental building blocks of any good story. <laughs> yes. Oh uh, yeah, you know what? That's right. That's goddamn right. <laughs> okay, so maybe we can briefly touch on this. A bit of weird advice is that you're a pantser or you're a plotter. And I hate the term pantser, it's so cutesy. But basically the idea is that writers all fall into one of these two categories. And one is a plotter, which is somebody who carefully plans the plot structure of their story in advance. Or you're a pantser, which means you fly by the seat of your pants and make it up as you go along. And I really don't like this. I don't like the way we hyper-categorize ourselves and the work we do. I think rigidly categorizing yourself is kind of dumb. There are some stories I've plotted carefully and others I've kind of improvised as I went along. Generally, if a story's longer, I feel the need to structure it out and outline it a little more carefully so that I don't get totally lost. And I think that's pretty reasonable. But but my shorter stories, some of them I've kind of winged it or played it by ear. Yeah, some people seem to think it was like, oh, once I figure out if I'm a pantser or a plotter, I'm going to have everything figured out. Every story's just going to fall into place and it's going to be super easy. And it's like, eh. I don't think so, because I know I tend to like just like make shit up as I go. Like a lot of the times I'll have like an image in my head and be like, this has got to be like either the beginning or the ending. And if it's the beginning, I'm just like, this is the image. I'm starting with it. Let's see what flows naturally from here. Conversely, a lot of the times I'll get an idea for like a scene or an image that's got to be like a climactic moment. I'm going to be like, I got to write until I get here. That tends to be how I do it. But yeah, if I'm working on something longer, I usually, I may not have like a super formal outline, but I'll, I'll have like maybe little notes to myself. Yeah. Like I want to include this scene, this scene, this scene. Different people will work in better in different ways. Like it could be a dis- even project by project, different stages of your life, different length of work. I don't think it's helpful. Like if you decide that like I'm a pantser and if I, if I do any kind of planning at all, I just can't write and then decide... I've really only written short stories, but I think I'm going to be a novelist. And then you try to transition to writing a novel and you don't plan anything at all. You don't even make notes of like what kind of scenes you think you're going to include. You might find that that's like really, really hard and you might get discouraged. But having like such a rigid self-categorization is not helpful. It's helpful to kind of know yourself and know your general tendencies and how you prefer to work. Like I know myself personally, if I write a really detailed outline, I don't really feel like writing it as much because I feel like I've already told the story to myself. But I know I'm like, yeah, maybe I don't want to do like a super detailed outline. But if I do general plot points or like ideas and have some notes, that's helpful. Mm. I don't think very many people are like fully one or fully the other. And if they try to work to any extent in the other direction. It's going to totally fuck them up. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Maybe for like one in a million people, but I think most people are probably going to be somewhere in the middle and it could vary by project. It it strikes me as being part of this tendency to view ourselves as a type and not a person. There's this great essay from The Outline from a few years ago, rest in peace, The Outline, called Raising a Person in a Culture Full of Types. 
And it's about how people at this young age sort of decide that I'm a type or I'm a category and that this determines who I am and what I am and this determines everybody and what they are and how they are and it's this really rigid sense of how you identify yourself and how you categorize others that can really kind of fuck you up. Yes, these bitches that think I'm an IFP means anything. Yeah, I am I'm an INTJ or whatever it is. That's I, I actually I am an INF well I'm an INFJ now, comparing to the tests that I've taken, yeah. but uh, it, it doesn't matter that much. It, it really doesn't. Yeah. The fact that it can change if you take it on a different day should tell you everything you need okay. to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just a symptom of that kind of pervasive mindset, yeah. and I don't think it's good for you as a person. And in general, I don't think it's good for your writing either. So try and get out of no, that mindset, I, please. I, I know it's tempting, because like, I have this temptation. If you give me a BuzzFeed yeah. quiz that's going to tell me what kind of potato I am, I'm going to take that fucking quiz. But also, you 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 can you got to take it with a grain of salt. It's not that yeah. serious. It's not that deep. Yeah. All right. So we've been talking for a little bit over an hour. Let's wind down. Maddie, what do you have to plug? So I have an itch.io store. It's uh, Devil's Doorbell, all one word, dot itch.io. I've got five short stories on there. They're all kind of variations on dark fantasy horror of various lengths. One's flash fiction, the rest are, you know, neatly in the short story realm. And I also just recently started a substack. It's It's kind of quiet so far, but I got plans for it. And that one, it is also devilsdoorbell.substack.com. And I'm going to be posting about writing and and books and I eventually have decided I'm going to do a little segment I'm calling Faustian Bargain Bin because (laughs) dedicated right-gooders who are in the Discord almost certainly know that I love a good deal with the devil story and I'm going to talk about those just kind of informally what what I think about different ones what I like what I don't like it'll mostly be what I like because I I'm not going to say I become indiscriminate and will read any trash that has this type of thing in it, but if you got to deal with a devil in your story, you're getting like, if I was a star rating type of person, which I'm not, but if I was, you're getting like an extra half star just for that. So I'll be talking about that as well at some point. That's pretty much what I got going on right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always fun to bitch about bad writing advice. And I see so much of it because I am a misery tourist and I'm on Reddit more than I should be. Being on Reddit at all is generally being on Reddit more than you should be. Yeah. There's a couple like really niche subreddits that are actually like pretty good and useful. But once you get into the big ones, it's just woof. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for coming on and thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, please head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>